Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we have a lot of news surrounding D&D, including the D&D core book release dates. I'm going to talk about what we should call these books. I have, I have strong opinions about what we should call them, and I hope to convince you to, have, to hang on to the same thing so we can all communicate about these books. We're going to talk about Roll20 picking up D&D uh, 2024 support and why that's a really good thing. Humblewood campaign setting is now available on D&D Beyond. We're going to dissect that a little bit. Wizards of the Coast had a good video about how to get started or how D&D got started from 1970 to 1977. But today's big GM topic is going to be which steps from the eight steps of Return to the Lazy Dungeon Master work best for which circumstances while you're preparing for your game. And uh, we're going to cover more questions from the February 2024 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome features like a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, a bunch of tools to help you run your game, a bunch of exclusive adventures, the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, and a whole bunch more. Later in the show, I'm going to show a new thing that I released to patrons this past week that I think is a lot of fun. Uh, but particularly patrons help me put on shows like this. If you want to help me continue to put on shows like this, please consider your support uh, on the Sly Flourish Patreon. So there's been lots of talk about the D&D core book release dates. There was that whole thing that happened where they said it was going to be in May and they said, no, it's not going to be in May and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and they finally, finally announced when exactly the uh, books are coming out. They have a whole discussion about Dungeons and Dragons, the 50th anniversary of Dungeons and Dragons, and what it means for when these books are coming out, which conventions they are going to be at, and so forth. The important dates for the core books, 2024 Player's Handbook is coming out September 17th, 2024. The Dungeon Master's Guide is coming out November 12th, 2024, and the Monster Manual is coming out February 18th, 2025. So we have basically a year to the day that I am recording this is when we're going to see a new Monster Manual, a new 2025 D&D Monster Manual. So I subscribe heavily to the opinion of my friends, uh, Teos Abadia and Sean Merwin on Mastering Dungeons, who talked about this. And they said that they would be very happy for wizards to take as long as they need to make these books good. And I agree as well. I bet you that off the top of your head, you can't tell me what the release dates were for the 2014 Player's Handbook, Monster Manual, and Dungeon Master's Guide, or whether they all came out at once or whether they came out separately. I bet you don't even remember. I don't remember, and I was there, and it, and it really doesn't matter because they lasted 10 years longer. If it takes them a couple extra months to get things out, I'm not in any hurry. I've got plenty of games to run. I've got plenty of systems to play. I've got plenty going on. I would really, I think that, that Wizards of the Coast putting out these three core books is really important to the industry. It's probably the most important thing that Wizards has done for D&D since 2014. And I want them to get it right. So I am perfectly happy with whenever they come out. I am not going to give them any shade if these dates move. I don't really mind. Particularly, I don't mind if it was because they got feedback or because they looked into things and they needed to change some things to make sure they're right. I am particularly happy with them taking making those decisions. Now, there could be other reasons why they'd be delayed that don't result in the books actually being a better quality. And that's a different issue. But I don't need them right away. I got lots going on. There's lots of things happening. So not not too worried about these dates. Now, there is a big question, and, and actually, EN World, I was reading a thread on EN World yesterday where Morris from EN World, the run, the Morris runs EN World, runs EN Publishing and all of that, was combining a couple of the forums, including like the 5e forum and the 1D&D forum and the D&D and 1D&D forum and stuff like that. And they were like, well, what's the tag going to be? And that got a huge thread started about what we should call these books. And I've seen many, many different people calling these books many, many different things. But I am going to put my flag on the ground for what I think we should call these books, because I think it's actually important for us to be able to communicate with each other about what we're talking about. And to, to cut right to the chase, I think we should call them the D&D 2024 books or D&D 24, if you want. D&D 24 would be fine. One D&D doesn't really work because one D&D was a whole stupid other marketing thing that really didn't end up being anything else. So we shouldn't call them that any more than we call D&D 2014, D&D Next. I also think we should probably call the 2014 books D&D 2014, 
not D&D. You could call them D&D 5e, except the new ones are also kind of 5e. So D&D 5e doesn't really work. I've heard some people say it should be 5e 24. The problem is 5e is now an open platform for lots of different systems. So does Tales of the Valiant, that's coming out in 2024, and it is also 5e. Is that not also 5e 24? So that doesn't work for me either. Yeah, I hear people like, yeah, but we all know that 5e is actually D&D. I disagree. I think 5e is a big open platform that includes Dungeons and Dragons, Tales of the Valiant, C7020, Level Up Advanced 5e, lots of different systems that are using 5e for different things that are whole systems. They're not just like supplements, but also all of the supplements that are compatible with 5e aren't just compatible with D&D. They are compatible with the other 5e versions as well. So I think I think that it's important to to clarify when we're talking about D&D and when we're talking about 5e and that they are not the same thing. So to me, 5e24 doesn't really work because it's describing, it's trying to describe too much and you're going to confuse me. I won't know what you're talking about. If you say 5e24, I will ask you, are you talking about Tales of the Valiant? Are you talking about Level Up Advanced 5e? What are we talking about? Instead, D&D24 works. D&D2024 works as well. So uh, please... I mean, you know, you're going to do what you want and lots of people are going to choose it and lots of people are going to argue with me. But my argument is 5e isn't D&D. D&D isn't 5e. D&D is actually one of many systems that are using 5e. And now they actually have two, right? Wizards of the Coast is, has published two different systems that both support 5e, D&D 2014 and D&D 2024. And just because D&D 2024 D&D 2024 comes out doesn't mean people are going to stop playing D&D 2014. So again... I think you're stuck up. So D&D 2024 is the label that we want to have. Also in the news this week, uh, Roll20 announced that they are going to have D&D 2024 support and they are revamping their character sheet. Now, this news isn't quite as big as the news that that the D&D 2024 books were going to be available on Foundry. That was a really big deal because it never had been on Foundry. This one is a little less of a surprise, but it's still a very important uh, landmark. Like I would have been very surprised if Wizards and Hasbro did not support Roll20 with uh, D&D 2024 if they were allowing Foundry to use D&D 2024. So this isn't a big surprise, but it's a reinforcement of a very good thing. And that good thing is that it shows that, that Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast are putting D&D 2024 on platforms other than their own. We now know specifically of two other alternate big, plat- the, the big two, right? The, the two biggest VTTs that are out there are Roll20 and Foundry. And now both of them are going to have native, direct, licensed support from Wizards of the Coast for D&D 2024. That is a big deal. That to me, you know, I talk about my little candles, right? I have my, my, my little candles. Let's take a look at the little candles. So I have my little candles about what are the lit candles. And one of the lit candles was that Wizards of the Coast was continuing to support Roll20 as an alternative platform that people could use, that people have been using for a long time. That candle was already lit because they've been continuing support on it for a while. That candle is now good and bright. They have specifically said, yes, they are going to include it. I'm very, I'm very happy to see that. I'm really, I'm really excited to see that. I think it's a really good thing. It, 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 it burns. It takes a, a lit candle and shines it nice and bright i think that that is an excellent an excellent thing for this whole hobby that the continue that the the number one biggest player in the hobby is supporting platforms other than their own Uh, i think that that's really good Uh, another thing that happened this week is that hit point press uh, hit point press's humblewood campaign setting is now available on DD beyond this is another product from another publisher that is now available on D&D Beyond on this first party platform for D&D. And that has been interesting. So that is the third publisher that now has material available on D&D Beyond. I still go back and forth on, on is this a good thing? Is it not a good thing? Does it, is it sort of an, an even break? What does it mean for us as GMs and, and as hobbyists? Last, I think last show or the show before, I talked about the fact that I had a hypothesis that D&D Beyond was becoming a, a too dominant a platform in the industry and that because we it, it had this dominant platform that it was hurting other producers, of particularly of 5e material, from being able to get a good reach or that, that, that getting use at the table. And then I ran some polls and the polls showed me the, that that wasn't necessarily true. That like 60, 70, I think it was like 70% of GMs allow uh, options for players for the other, for other, from other sources uh, for their characters. And like, 
I think it was like 50 or 60% were actually doing it. It was like enough people were using it that it, it didn't show me that D&D Beyond was becoming this dominant platform. So, so in this case, you're like, okay, well then putting out another publisher material is good. One of the things is like, however big a deal this is for like hit point press, the bigger a deal it is, I think the worse it is for the industry. And what that means is like, it's an inverse proportional thing. Let's pretend, for example, that this doubled the amount of sales for Humblewood, right? If it doubled the amount of overall sales, that means D&D Beyond is a dominant platform in the industry for publishers. And it means that all of the publishers who aren't on it are hindered by the fact that they're not on it. If it's not that big a deal into the sales, well, then that means it's not necessarily that great a thing for Humblewood. It's, it's certainly a good thing. Like it's, it's, it's beneficial to them. But if it's not that big a deal, then it's not really that big a deal. So like there's this weird thing that if it, however much it seems to help them. And I remember when Ghostfire had their products put up on D&D Beyond that they saw a big jump in the current Kickstarter they were running. And it wasn't, a, I mean, it, it, I don't think it was double, right? But there was definitely like a bump in their, in, in how well their, their current Kickstarter was doing. But if that bump was too great, that means you're now dependent upon D&D Beyond to do stuff like that in order for you to have that there. And if maybe it works out well for you, but what about everybody else? Then the question is, how are they choosing which publishers to publish there? I know this sounds very self-serving for me. Oh, Mike Shea's mad because they're not publishing Sly Flair stuff on, on D&D Beyond. Honestly, I'm not worried about that and I'm not thinking about that I'm thinking about it overall from other publishers like which material do they allow which material do they not and why and if it's a matter of like they want to highlight specific publishers and they're they're looking at the quality of the material and they're looking at how it benefits them and they're doing a reasonable assessment of which ones will both help the company that they are promoting and themselves I mean that's understandable it's their platform they can do what they want but I worry about sort of the inside cool boys club. And this is something that Wizards of the Coast has had a problem with in the past, particularly with the DM Guild and the DM Adept program, where the DM Adept program, I'll be very clear, the DM Guild Adept program was not a great program. It was a corrupt program. And, you know, it meant that some people, they, they claimed that it was merit-based. They claimed that, oh, the people that are published as a DM Guild adept got there because they publish really good stuff. And for many of the adepts, that was absolutely true. Many of my good friends were DM Guild adept writers. They wrote for the DM Guild adept. They managed to get in. But I can tell you, there were some who got on there because they were friends with somebody. It absolutely happened. So it was not a great program. And if one of the questions, and this came up in the discussions I was having with some friends of mine, are, are companies getting there because they're behaving well when it comes to the relationship with Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro? And are other publishers not there because they don't behave well? An example would be Cobalt Press. When the whole OGL thing was going on, Cobalt Press did Black Flag. They were clearly poking Wizards of the Coast in the eye when they came out with Black Flag. They then put out Tales of the Valiant. Some of their initial uh, discussions were talking about, you know, quite candidly about the need to bring this game into a larger fold and not under the control of any one corporation. Is it possible that Wizards and Hasbro said, well, fine, F you then, we're not going to put any Cobalt Press stuff on D&D Beyond. And is that a healthy industry to have? It's not terrible if D&D Beyond isn't that popular or isn't that dominant in the field and doesn't really hurt them that much. But if it did hurt them, I think that that would be a problem. And if it's a question of like, well, now one company is getting a 30% boost in their overall revenue because they behaved well and another company doesn't behave well, so they don't get a 30% boost. That's not great. I don't think that that's great. So how do we tell any of this, right? It's like, okay, you know, how do we decide? How do we know? Well, we don't know. I have no idea how they're picking who they're picking. I have no idea what's going on. But I, what I do know, what I am confident about is that at least among you who have heard my nonsense before and those that were willing to answer the polls that I put out is that D&D Beyond isn't a totally dominant platform. It, about half of the surveyed players and GMs use D&D Beyond. About half of them do not. And of those that do, many of those use material from other publishers or allow material from other publishers when they're running 5e games. So I feel better about that. However, I still look at this and, and I don't necessarily think it is an, an, a, an, a totally great thing that they're allowing other publishers to publish on D&D Beyond. I'm not saying it's the worst thing ever either. I don't really have a super strong opinion on it. I, obviously, I have a super strong opinion. I just I'm hanging on to it loosely because I don't necessarily know 
how big a deal it actually is. And I don't know that we will know because like for Ghostfire, I'm sure things were really well for Ghostfire in those first few weeks. Are they going really well now? I don't know. Will they be well a year from now? Like, and then the more products that get published here, the less attention any one product will get. So I think it was probably really good if you're like the first three or four or five publishers there. But I wonder how sustained those sales are going to be compared to like the sales you can have on your own website. So what recommendations can I offer you specifically about this? I still recommend that if you're going to buy Humblewood, Humblewood instead of buying it on D&D Beyond, go to Hitpoint Press and buy the PDF directly from them for two reasons. One is that you're directly supporting them. You're not paying a cut to anybody else. They're getting the majority of the cut and you're getting a PDF of the material. That PDF you can download and keep forever. You can put it on a USB disk. You can, you can download it forever. If you are one who loves paper products, buy the physical book as well. Well, that physical book will probably, if you're careful with it, will last longer than you will. So you know that that will be strong. And then the second strongest is digital data that you can actually download and keep yourself. So before I, w I, I don't recommend buying uh, material from other publishers on D&D Beyond. I think you are better off buying the PDFs directly from the, the publisher of it so that you can download it and keep it and use it yourself. Now, one thing that's very important to talk about with this whole uh, getting other publishers to publish their material on the on D &D Beyond that is very good is these are clearly non-exclusive licenses. This isn't a situation like the DMs Guild where you can only publish on the Guild and once you publish there, you can't publish it anywhere else and you can never take it back. Obviously, that's not taking place now. All of the products that have been published on D, &D Beyond are clearly non-exclusive licenses because the companies that are publishing them also publish them on their own websites. So that is an excellent part of this relationship between Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast and the publisher is clearly it is not an exclusive license. Uh, also this week, Wizards of the Coast put out what I thought was an excellent video describing the history of D&D &D 1970 to 1977. I am not that interested in the history of D D. It's just like I would, you know, I wasn't there. I wasn't playing D D in 1973. I was playing in the mid 80s. And to me, where it came from isn't as interesting as where it is today and where it's going and what people are doing with it and what it means to the world today. However, I walked into this video thinking that way, thinking like, I'm not, I just, it's not that interesting to me. Like, I, yeah, there was lots of things that went on. There were lots of things that were good. There were lots of things that were bad. There's lots of weird ways that it came from. Uh, you know, I, I just wasn't, I, I wasn't that into it. But then I started watching this video and I got interested in it. It was a really interesting video that talked about a lot of things that I had heard little bits and pieces of, but hadn't really put together. Two examples of things that I heard where I was like, oh, that's really interesting, is the idea that the wilderness travel part of D&D was really came from a whole other game and that the actual book uh, for D&D &D at the time when it talked about wilderness travel said go buy this other game from this other publisher and use the map for that game in this game and that just cracks me up because it's actually not far off from the way D&D &D is now where it's like well we don't really have a good map product but you'll just go buy some other map product and use that when you're doing your maps like you know when Chris Perkins is talking about using a Chessex, uh, a Chessex map to draw maps out and you're like why don't you make one but you know you're the biggest company in the world for this and you can't make your own map so there, there's a little bit that, that that's kind of funny the other one was about how that the way D&D really operated back in the earliest days in the early 1970s was that it was definitely more like a West Marches style game now again I'm probably like the last person in the world to know this and everybody's like oh of course that's why we were talking about it but like uh, the idea of typical group play, which I kind of considered like the core of how D&D &D worked, was actually derived from tournament play uh, at conventions, not from how campaigns were run, where I think they said that one of the core books said, you probably don't want more than 12 to 14 players in your game or things will go out of hand. Can you imagine running a campaign with 12 to 14 players now? I'm having a really hard time with six. So, you know, that that was kind of interesting. So the idea that the way, the core way that D&D &D ran was you would have 12 to 14 players, some of which would come to you at any given time to play through a particular scenario, but the world was always moving on. And then when you hear things like, if you don't have a detailed calendar of events, you're not really playing d d it makes more sense when you realize that it was almost like a massive online game, that there was a living world moving forward and characters were just kind of coming in and out while the world was rolling forward. Again, I'm probably the last person in the world to really get my head around this, but this video in particular, a 38-minute video called How Dungeons & Dragons Got Started, published by 
Dave with Dungeons and Dragons on the on YouTube on the YouTubes. Um, you can find a link in the show notes. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was. I haven't even finished it yet. I've still got about you know about twenty minutes to go. But I am really enjoying this video. And, you know, I, I had talked to some friends of mine about this as well. And there are definitely some things that got sort of washed over in the video or things that are kind of like an argument. Again, there seemed to be like this tension about like when did D&D actually, when when would it really form? Did it form when Gary Gygax started playing it? Was it within the first copy of the book was sold? And things like that. People seem to want to argue about this. Honestly, I don't really care. You know, it's, it's like, it's sort of like the when did 2014 books get published? I don't remember. I don't really care. I care about what we have for the game today, but it's still kind of an interesting video. So I, I, I definitely recommend this video. I thought it was very interesting. It does kind of get me interested in a book I had no real intention of buying, which is that the history of Dungeons and Dragons 20, 1970 to 1970, uh, 1978. I think I might pick it up because it might be an interesting book. And it has like a lot of interesting artifacts that only Wizards of the Coast owns that are going to be published in this book. So I think that that's really interesting. Anyway, check out the video. That was a video that clearly worked for me. I wasn't going to buy a product. Now I probably am going to buy a product and it's because of a video I watched. So check that out. I talked about all of the great things that patrons of Sly Flourish get, but I actually just published a new one this past week. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is uh, I've been running Sly Flourish now for like 15 years or something like that. Yeah, I think it's like getting on there about 15, 16 years that I've been running, that I've been writing for Sly Flourish, an article a week talking about D&D since the earliest days of, of third, earliest days of fourth edition really is when I started up through today. And I wanted to go through and kind of make some of those articles a little bit more permanent and bring some of those articles forward so that people could see and read articles that they might not have read in the past and put it in a more permanent format that you could download and save and put on your ebook reader or just keep locally or throw into your Obsidian notebook or whatever so that you didn't have to just come to the website and trust that the website is going to be up forever. Same kind of thing we've been talking about before. So I sat down and I went through about 750 different Sly Flourish articles that I read. And I identified the ones that I felt like were the most timeless, that were ones that were valuable, kind of regardless of what RPG you were playing. On the assumption you're probably playing a D20-based fantasy RPG or an F20 game, as some some people like to refer to it. That if you're playing any of these kinds of games, that that these articles would be useful. And I so I took about 100, I think it's 101 articles from dated from 2013, which doesn't go back to the earliest days of Sly Flourish because most of the articles that I wrote before then I have if they were if they met this criteria I have rewritten them since and published them again so this covers articles from 2013 to 2023 actually has a couple articles from 2024 but we're going to ignore those and it's 101 different articles that meet kind of a, a set of criteria which I'll talk about it is delivered in a 346 page PDF uh, it is built for like five and a half by eight and a half I'm probably I'm thinking about doing a print on demand version of this I wanted to kind of get it out there and get people to look at it and get people to try it out and see what they think and then i might make a print on demand version of this available if i do that patrons of sly flourish will be able to buy the print on demand version at cost so just the cost of printing and shipping there will be no extra profit given to me or and and then if you're not a patron you should be able to buy it for with, with a with a with a you know with a commission in there and it's 100 different articles it's got a linked table of contents in the pdf and all of the articles there and all of these articles i'm releasing under a creative commons attribution non-commercial license that way if you download it and you want to do stuff with it you are you are free to do stuff with it you're free to, to kind of do what you want with it uh, you just can't do so for commercial purposes um so i wanted to make that a little bit more flexible i wanted to make the results of this a little bit more flexible now this package is available to patrons of sly flourish you can download it right off of your patron rewards page i also sent out a email to all patrons last week with the link to it so you can download it and the package contains four different versions of this book it's in in pdf html i'll show the html version a single big html linked html file a markdown file so you can convert it to a bunch of other formats using markdown and epub so that you can put it on your ebook reader of choice so that way you have this book in a lot of different formats that you can use in a lot of different ways lots of different ways for you to kind of enjoy these you can kind of see what i feel like are the best articles that have ever been published on sly flourish now obviously you can read them on sly flourish as well the nice thing about this one is you don't have to have access to sly flourish so you can read it on a plane or wherever you happen to be where you don't have internet access you could download the pdf or you can 
download the EPUB version or something like that and read it. So how did I pick these articles in particular? And the, the main, there were a few different criteria. One is I wanted to know that the topic of the article was just as useful today as it was when I wrote it or would be, would have been useful 10 years ago if it's something I wrote today with the hope that it is an article that is useful 10 years from now, that as we are watching the TTRPG industry change, are these articles still offering valid, useful advice on how to help you run your games that you can use? So that was one big criteria. Another big criteria is it is not replicating material from my books. So and then not, not necessarily because I wanted to keep that stuff separate, but I feel like if you've already read my books, I didn't want to load this up with articles that are basically covering material I already cover in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master or, the, or Forge of Foes or the the lazy dms companion or stuff like that so this is really meant to sit alongside your other sly flourish books like the lazy dungeon master books in particular so it, it talks it does still talk about it so there is like a eight steps 2023 version that i had written where i, I kind of went through all the eight steps and kind of wrote about what has changed with them so there's definitely connection points between the books and between the books that I've written and these articles, but they're not direct replicate replicas of them. Now, what's in kind of fun, and I actually did this, is I was going through Flourish, reading some of the articles that were precursors to the books. I read some interesting ones that talked about some designs that we did for Forge of Foes, some other ones for the Lazy DM's Companion, and, and it was really interesting to go back and see where like the Lazy DM concepts came from. That was a lot of fun. And that might have been kind of fun to put in here from a historical purpose, but it wasn't that useful as something that you would read today. Instead, you're better off just reading Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. So I don't have an overlap between between that but that those two criteria are sort of the main things that determined whether an article made it in here or not whether whether one of my articles made it in here or not do i feel that it's it's pretty timeless is it oh one one other major criteria is that it is not specifically about dungeons and dragons or fifth edition dungeons and dragons i have lots of articles that talk about fifth edition and fifth edition specific things those didn't make it in here because we're watching the game evolve and i wanted to make sure that the articles in here are still useful it still talks a lot about dnd and 5e but the principles that are in here are really principles that you could bring to pretty much any you know, D20 or fantasy role-playing game that you're using. So this whole collection, this the best of Sly Flourish 20, 2013 to 2023 is available to patrons of Sly Flourish right now. It's on your rewards page for the Patreon. You get it, you know, when, when you've subscribed to the Patreon, it's one of your many, many different rewards that you get. Very interested in feedback. So if you get it and you use it and you like it or you find weird things or there's other things that you have other thoughts about it, please let me know. You can let me know in the, in the Patreon Discord server uh, is probably the best way. That way you can get other people's points of view as well. Other people People can kind of jump onto your opinions and that way I can sort of see it. Uh, that's probably the best way to give any kind of feedback that you have. And then as we go forward and as time allows, I might look at this and figuring out how to do a print on demand version of this as well so that you can actually have a book sitting next to all of your other books that is the best of Sly Flourish. One of the questions that I get relatively often is the, hey, I play in a homebrew game and I know that the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master are best used when you're running published campaign settings or published adventures. And then I get other people who say, hey, I run using published settings and published adventures and I know that the eight steps from Return are actually built for doing homebrew campaign stuff. How do I do it? And which is always funny because it's really written to be able to support both. But you don't always necessarily use this eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master in the same way, depending on the circumstances of your game. I, uh, I have an article on Sly Flourish called Choosing the Right Steps from the Lazy DM Checklist, which talks about how you would pick which of the steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master to use under different circumstances. And it's not even just easy between saying whether or not you're using published stuff or whether you're doing homebrew stuff, but it's also stuff like, are you running a one-shot game? Are you at the beginning of a campaign? Are you in the middle of a campaign? What kind of adventure you're running? So we're going to talk a little bit today about which steps you're going to use depending on which style of game you're going to play. So for just a quick 30 second summary on what the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master are, and by the way, you can find a link that talks about the eight steps, other videos that I've done about the eight steps. And of course you can pick up Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. I don't know why you wouldn't. That includes the eight steps and describes them thoroughly. But just for a quick summary of the eight steps, the eight steps are review the characters, create a strong start, outline potential scenes, define secrets and clues, develop fantastic locations, outline important NPCs, choose relevant monsters, and select magic item rewards. Those are the eight steps. And the idea behind those eight steps is that you are getting all of the things you need prepared to help you to be able to be flexible and to be able to improvise during the game itself. So that's the intent of the eight steps. But one of the thing about the eight steps, and there's a chapter in return that specifically talks about this, is you can select which steps are useful for you 
not overall, but also at the moment, which times do you need them? And if you've watched me do my lazy GM prep videos, I don't know why you would, there's like a million of them, but let's say you have there you in those, you can watch me deciding which steps I need for the game. Cause really what it comes down to is what steps do I feel like I need in order to run the game? I'm going to run. There are some steps that I argue almost always provide a good value, regardless of the kind of game that you're running two steps in particular that I always tend to do regardless of them is what's the strong start and what secrets and clues do I have? Those two steps in particular are super, super valuable. Now, another one though is reviewing the characters is almost always valuable whenever you know who the characters are. But if you happen to be running like a convention game or you're running a game where the players are bringing their own characters, you don't know who they are, reviewing the characters isn't necessarily a step you can do. So that's a circumstance where that one step doesn't make a lot of sense. But anytime you do know who the characters are, even if you're going to be providing pregens to people, you can still think about all of the pregens that you're going to offer and put them out there. Now, if you're offering 12 pregens for six players or five players, maybe then it's not that worthwhile. But generally speaking, if you have any inclination into who the characters are, uh, you can review the characters. I heard a really good tip that I'll offer. Somebody else brought this up, which is even if you don't know the characters, if you know the players, you can review the players and know what kind of style they're going to bring to the game, what kind of things you know about them and what they enjoy, and then use that to help you steer the rest of the prep for your game. So even if you don't know who the characters are, if you know who the players are, that's still some information that you can use during that first step of reviewing the characters. The strong start is useful almost anytime you're going to run a game. Even if you're in the middle of a campaign, if you're in the middle of an adventure, but you're starting a new session, what is the scene that you're going to put in there that's going to draw the players directly into the action? What is the thing that's going to get them to say, to, to leave our real world and jump into the world we're creating together? That strong start is almost always super, super important. Many times, if you're in the middle of a campaign, you already know what it's going to be. I'm a big fan of leaving on a cliffhanger. So you're just getting started with a great big fight or just something really exciting happens. Then you've already wired in your strong start. That's a really good trick. It's like, can you end in a situation where you've already revealed the strong start and you know that at the next session you're going to run, the strong start is what's going to occur. But now if you're also running like a one-shot game or you're running a game in a, even if you're running like a published adventure, if the published adventure doesn't have a strong start, you can add one. If it does, you don't necessarily need to prep the step except to maybe write down scene one from the book. Like if the, if the adventure already has a strong start, you don't need to make one but it's worth your time to know what it is and to be ready to run it. Aligning potential scenes is something where sometimes you need it, sometimes you don't. And the circumstances for that one step can really happen in lots of different ways. Do you, it, does the book already have a very clear structure for how the adventure is going to play out? Do you already know where it's going to go? Or do you know that there's no way you can outline those scenes because you really have no idea where it's going to go? So I've talked before about how the outlining of potential scenes uh, is really a catch-all step where you could put everything from like, what are the next steps that the characters can choose from at the end of the session? Or just a very loose outline, like explore the dungeon, or can capture very specific things for you. So you can really do a lot with potential scenes, but sometimes you you just might not need to use it at all. If you already know if the adventure is covering everything that you need, if you already have it in mind, then you can throw away the potential scenes. I think I've mentioned this before. That was the one step that I added pretty late in the game when I was working on Return to the Lazy Dungeon Master, mostly because I saw so many people using a step like that. And I'm really glad I added it in because it's a step I use all the time myself. And I think it is a very valuable catch-all step for covering sort of the structure of the adventure that you're going to run, whether it's published, whether it's homebrew, whether it's at the beginning of a campaign, whether it's in the middle of a campaign, however you're using it, it's still a good idea to give you just a little bit of a bound of like, I'm going to be spending three hours with my friends today. What are the things that could occur during that three hour game? And what choices could I put in front of the players at the end of this session so that I know where it's going to go next? Defining secrets and clues is another one where I feel like even if you're running published adventures or your own homebrew adventure, or you're in the middle of a campaign or at the beginning of a campaign, or you're doing a one-shot game, having those 10 secrets and clues is a great way to kind of fill in all of the details and fill in all of the cracks of your adventure and wrap your whole adventure in interesting lore that makes your game different from session to session or makes your game different than any other game that the players are playing. It's designed to be very straightforward and very easy to do. Of course, coming up with this kind of lore can always be a little bit tricky, 
but it's just one sentence. You're not writing out giant tomes of background material. You're just doing the sentences. But even if you have a big, thick adventure, like I'm running Empire of the Ghouls, which has tons of lore in it, every session, it's still useful for me to kind of go through the adventure, pick out the elements that I think are the important bits that the characters are going to discover or could discover in the next session and write them out of my list of 10. So I really feel like Secrets and Clues, along with the Strong Start, are valuable no matter what kind of adventure you're running, published, homebrew, uh, one-shot game, the beginning of a campaign or the middle of a campaign. However you're running your game, I really feel like Secrets and Clues is a valuable step that can offer a whole lot to fill in so much of your adventure for not a ton of work uh, on the preparation side. Fantastic Locations is definitely one of those that changes depending on the style of adventure you're running and on what material you already have available. So Fantastic Location, developing Fantastic Locations could be something as simple as saying, what are the backdrops to each of the scenes that I'm going to have in my next session? Let's say I'm running a three-hour game that's about five different scenes that are going to play out. What are the locations that those scenes are going to have? Or the characters are traveling in the Overland. What are three interesting locations they might run into while they're traveling in the Overland? Or they're going through this these big chambers of a, of a relatively linear dungeon what are those chambers like but then you could have like a dungeon crawl where you have you know a dozen or two dozen different chambers that the characters could go through well then your fantastic location changes to defining each of those chambers with just enough information to give you an idea what's going on there so that you can improvise the rest of that location if the characters head there what i've enjoyed doing recently is printing out like a dyson logos map and taking a pen to it and just writing on the map the locate little one one word or two word descriptions of what might it be in those chambers and then printing that out and throwing it in my notes so that I have just a very, very loose list of the kinds of locations that the characters might explore during their game. Now, if you are playing a published adventure, it's possible that all those locations are already filled out in the adventure. Then you don't need to worry about this step. It can help you to review what's in those chambers, especially for the next session that you're running. But if it's already there, you generally don't have to worry about it. Also, if you're running a game with like a lot of random components like Shadow Dark or something like that, maybe you don't say, well, I'm not going to worry too much about it. I'm just going to roll the dice uh, when, the, when, the, when the game is playing. So Fantastic Locations is very valuable, but not always necessarily the same way. And in some circumstances, you might not have to do it at all. Outlining important NPCs. This is another one where published material might have you covered. If you're if you publish material like a published adventure or a campaign source book already has good pictures and descriptions of NPCs and you feel like that's what you really need, then that can work great. Now, you might say, yeah, except they're kind of spread all out and I need to have a reference. You might still list out the NPCs that you think are important and the page numbers where you can find them in the source book. I'm a huge, huge fan and I highly recommend that in your game notes, you write down the page numbers of things like monsters or NPCs so that you can quickly look them up from the book while it's sitting there in front of you. Even if you're playing online, sure, you can link it in your online notes and that works too. But I still like playing with physical books, even if I'm playing online and it's still useful for me to run the page number, write down the page numbers of things like monsters and NPCs. So you could definitely do that. You could also, if you wanted to, if you thought it would be valuable, you could roll up some random NPCs and just get little bits of stat lines down or not even stat lines, just like descriptions of the NPCs down in your NPC list. Uh, that can change depending on whether or not they're going to be running into NPCs. Which NPCs might they run into? Again, published material might already have NPCs in there, so you don't need to spend as much time on them. Homebrew, you know, I need to spend more time on it. What I find is I generally only need the name. If I could just name the NPC, I can usually improvise everything else, but it can definitely help. Choosing relevant monsters. Again, a published, published material might already have this in there for you. They might have random lists of monsters. They might have monsters associated with particular locations if you're going through like a dungeon crawl. But sometimes you might want to list out those monsters anyway or give yourself a reference to where those monsters exist. If you're doing a homebrew adventure, uh, you probably want to list out what monsters you think might be relevant to the adventure that you're going to run. Again, I really like either linking them if you're using digital notes or write down the page number for a physical book so you know where to look up that stat block or that information when you're putting their monsters in. Sometimes you may not need this step because the monsters are already covered in the adventure. Other times you might need it. And the same thing is true with selecting magic item rewards. Sometimes it's, I think even in published adventures, I still like to roll up some random treasure parcels that I can have in the, my back pocket so that while the characters are exploring, if they find an area where it makes sense for treasure, I have something I can just drop right in. It's really, really easy to do. But sometimes those treasure parcels or tre specific treasure are already 
already laid out in the book. And again, if you have a published adventure, you're like, nope, the loot's already covered. Or you're playing a game like Shadow Dark, where you roll randomly for treasure, well, then you don't need to worry about it as much. You're going to roll at the table. You're going to have your players roll. I, I like to have players roll the dice on treasure tables. They don't know what their listing is, but they roll it, and that way they feel like they're more directly connected to the treasure that they picked up. Uh, I've had it where they rolled a double zero on a treasure table, which meant they got like a super powerful artifact, and they totally got the super powerful artifact. Now it's helping the whole party. So that's definitely one. So sometimes you might spend more time with your magic item rewards. Other times you might uh, just be selecting what's ever in a published module, or sometimes you might just be rolling randomly. So I hope this gives you an idea of like the different ways that you can use these steps. If you take nothing else from this, the main thing that I would recommend is that the strong start and your secrets and clues are really valuable steps that can help you with pretty much any kind of game that you're running, whether it's a homebrew game, whether it's a published game, whether it's a one-shot game, or whether it's right at the beginning of a campaign or so somewhere in the middle of a campaign, I really feel like that those two steps in particular offer the biggest bang for the buck for, for helping you get your hands around the adventure you're going to run. And for the other steps, it's really contextual. Do you know who the characters are? Then yes, it's almost certainly useful for reviewing the characters. Do you know what scenes might occur? Do you need to get your hands around the structure of the adventure? Then the scene step can help you out. Do you have a big location that you want to fill out a review or a map that you want to fill out with details? Then fantastic locations can help you out. Do you want to make sure that you have a handle on what NPCs could show up, the NPC step, monsters, treasure, same sort of thing. Every month on the, the Sly Flourish Patreon, we have a monthly Q&A. Any patron can ask a question about tabletop role-playing games. I answer every question on Patreon every Friday morning. I get my nice cup of coffee and I go down to my office and I sit and I answer questions. It's very delightful. And some of those questions make it here to the show. Other questions become catalysts for other articles or other videos and I try to bring them out so we can all learn from them. Uh, the Puka asks, Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands by Raging Swan Press. You've spotlighted it and have mentioned it several times about my shadowed keep on the Borderlands game and so forth. Are you running it more or less as is a thing for first through fourth level characters or are you allowing for more content past fourth level or something else? I'm asking because it looks cool and like most of the Raging Swan stuff. And if you figured out ways to make it even bigger and better, I'm always interested in info like this. Yes, it is totally different than what the book offers. And, and this is one where I feel like I've been able to bring a ton of stuff to this adventure and expand it into really a campaign, a larger, you know, mid, you know, first, probably to eighth or ninth at least level campaign. Maybe it'll get even bigger than that. Just by using like the material that's in the book and grabbing onto a piece of it and expanding it outwards. So it is definitely gone. They haven't even gotten to the shadow. The characters are fifth level. We've been playing for many months and they haven't even gotten to the shadowed keep on the borderlands. I'm still using Dulwich. I'm still using a lot of the locations that are described in the book and I blew them out into a storyline that is far bigger the storyline is that multiple demon princes have cults that are operating in and around the area that are trying to open the doors to a structure known as the black cathedral which is somewhere buried deep underneath the earth and if they can open the doors to the black cathedral the winning cult will be able to draw their demon prince into the world and hopefully take over the whole world so the characters are involved in watching cults battle each other while the characters are also battling these cults in an attempt to both prevent them from awakening the black cathedral and opening the doorways or stop them from doing so or deal with the consequences of what's going on the characters have been running all around the area I've, I've been loosely placing this in the world of Greyhawk so I've dropped in we have Greyhawk gods we have some Greyhawk nations but generally I've, I'm not a big Greyhawk dude I have not I don't know it particularly well and I actually wonder whether it was worth doing that at all there's still some lore that's wrapped around it that's Greyhawk like the demon princes and everything like that are definitely coming from like Greyhawk versions of of these of this instances and uh, it's been a lot of fun one of the really fun things I did is that the cults are all using different names for their particular branch that aren't tied directly to the name of a demon prince. So we had the Black Harbinger was the name of one of the cults, the cult of the Black Harbinger. And nobody knew who that was. And then they discovered that the Black Harbinger is Orcus. And they're like, oh, this is an undead cult. And and they, they knew it was an undead cult, but they figured out that it was actually trying to bring Orcus into play. There are two other cults that are warring with it, warring with each other. And sometimes there's like one cult that has two different names or two, two cults that have two different names that are actually belong to the same demon prince and so there's all these kinds of things in so it's really been a lot of fun to run the characters are just getting to 
uh, the point where they're going to head towards the Shadowed Keep. But in my version, the Shadowed Keep has already been overtaken by these cults. So all the bandits have already, they actually became friends with a bunch of the bandits because the bandits absconded and left. And it turned out one of the bandits who's leading them was like an old hero of one of the characters. So they know each other and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, I've definitely been expanding it way beyond what the adventure has, as I recommend one does in the same way that I have taken the stuff from Curse Scroll 1 for Shadow Dark and blown it out into a much larger campaign. I really feel like that kind of material where it gives you just enough stuff to grab onto and then expand out and blow out a Euro campaign is a lot of fun. So I love Shadow Keep of the Borderlands. I think it's an excellent adventure. I highly, highly recommend it. And my version of it is pretty much completely different than any other version that anybody else would, would ever run. D&D BT Joe says, my question has to do with a lazy DM way for making monsters on the fly and character classes. Would there be a lazy way to create character classes? I imagine this would be similar to using the monster statistics by CR chart, common monster type templates, and common monster powers, but it would be for classes. The reason I'm asking is I'm running a therapy group that teaches coping skills with D&D. Uh, the kids in the group aren't interested in the standard classes and want to do some pretty wild things. I want to indulge their enthusiasm, but I don't want to make it OP as that would end up not being fun. I have already looked at flavoring existing classes like the moon druid and artificer but the forge of foes book has been so incredibly useful in running monsters that it got me thinking about classes for these kids so i i brought this up because i feel like there is room for a product like this that doesn't yet exist uh, the closest company that i've seen that's doing something like this is cubicle seven where they have managed to take core components of the fifth edition uh, the whole fifth edition system and changed it slightly so i just got uh, from Cubicle 7, the Life Well Lived book, uh, I got my Kickstarter reward for a Life Well Lived, which basically completely replaces how character generation occurs. It doesn't change any of the fifth edition mechanics or anything like that. But instead of going through the typical character creation process in Life Well Lived, there's a whole different way that you can build your character out. What I like about this is it really shows how modular fifth edition can be. So I'd be very interested to see a product that expands fifth edition in the same way that we took a book like Forge of Foes and rethought about how you can run monsters during your game. And as much as we see like Cubicle 7 with A Life Well Lived and with Uncharted Journeys changing core components of how fifth edition operates, it would be really interesting for somebody to build a fifth edition compatible system that changes how character creation works. And I have a few different models for what this would look like. Uh, my, my friend Scott Gray is working on a system called Core 20. Core 20 is a classless and levelless system for D20. And you basically build every, you build your whole character up from a collection of feats. And as your character grows, you pluck in more feats and, and kind of build your character like a big Lego thing of where all of your feats are kind of stacked together, building out a character. Uh, Core 20, unfortunately, will not be, at least unfortunately for this topic, will not be fifth edition compatible because of the mathematics and the way that the style of that game works doesn't really make it work well as a fifth edition compatible system. Another game that I think has a system that could work is something like Shadow of the Demon Lord and Shadow of the Weird Wizard. I actually just got my copy of the Shadow of the Weird Wizard core book. I haven't dug through it yet much, but I do know Shadow of the Demon Lord. One of the interesting things about Shadow of the Demon Lord is it's sort of, if you were to imagine from a fifth edition perspective, it separates your subclass from your class. So imagine if you have your class growth that's going one way and then subclasses that you could drop in and the subclasses can be from any type. So you don't have to necessarily pick only subclasses that are tied to a class. You can pick them from anything and it gives you, it's almost like you're constantly multi-classing. I think there's room for something like this for fifth edition where you have more flexibility in how you're building your character. You could definitely have a classless 5e where you still have levels, just every level you kind of pluck in these different features to build your character. I'm not the guy to write it. I don't really get into class design. I've never designed a subclass. I've never really worked out all of the mechanics and that it's really, really hard to make something that is balanced well for the game and fun for players that doesn't make life hard for the GM and makes all of the other players happy to play alongside. There's a lot of things that you have to balance when you're building characters that I'm just not proficient in haven't spent any time with and so this is really something for somebody else now i will say for this particular question though a couple of other suggestions one is that as a patron D, &D bt joe uh, you have access to something called lightning 5e uh, lightning 5e is a six page lightweight version of 5e that i wrote uh, with a design of like i want to get this in front of players very quickly so that they can build characters and they can run off now this one still focuses on like having your fighter your cleric your rogue and your mage but you could hack this a lot to 
add in interesting subclasses. You can kind of see how characters grow. You can add your your different styles. And its intention is to have a working version of a game that feels like 5e, but is very, very quick, that would let you expand into larger 5e if you wanted to. So it you know the, the math works out. I, I don't know that this is going to scratch your itch directly, but it is the kind of thing that, that at least gets you in that run, and it is something that's very quick. Again, it's available to patrons of Sly Flourish. You can uh, pick that up on the Patreon website. Uh, the other the other game I would recommend is Fate Fate Condensed. Fate Condensed is sort of the updated version of Fate Core and Fate Accelerated into a very slim volume. You can buy it for like ten bucks. It's real or five dollars. It's really really cheap. Paperback trade paperback book, and it lets you build any kind of character that you want. It lets characters and it, and it has like a good solid system for how you play. Um, you can, you know, as a GM, you can kind of design some constraints and uh, the players can sort of build characters in many different ways by building their characters from ideas called aspects and aspects are completely open, but always operate the same way. So if you want players to be able to really expand out a fate condensed is a good way to do it. Now it is not 5e compatible at all. So if you have players that are both, I want to really customize my character in super unique ways, but also play 5e. That's a little trickier. I don't know that there's any one answer for that. And I, but I would really love to see something that did, which is why. I brought up this question. Matthew Davis asks, what are your fave three mechanics or design thoughts from 5e or any other game you have played? I answered with three of them on Patreon, but I changed my mind about one of them. And so I added a different one on. So my three kind of favorite mechanics that I've seen in operation, number one is the Cypher Systems 1 to 10 challenge system. I love the idea that you can play an entire Cypher game. This is like Numenera. In Numenera, you can play any challenge out by giving it a number from 1 to 10. If it's a monster, that tells you how much damage they do. It tells you how many hit points they have. It tells you how dangerous they are. It gives you everything you need to make everything from the smallest, weakest creature to the biggest cyclopean horror on this one single metric where you just pick a number between 1 and 10 and it tells you everything you need to know. Uh, when I ran my Numenera game, this is something I really, really loved. It was actually a design consideration when I was thinking about Forge of Foes. How can you basically like build a monster with nothing but a challenge rating? It's not nearly as elegant in Forge of Foes and for 5e as it is in Cypher because you just can't make a 5e system that is nearly as clean as Cypher systems but it really really works well I, I love that system unfortunately for me my players didn't like it as much as I liked it so I we enjoyed our Numenera game and people liked the campaign a lot but we really felt like the math scaling was weird and the way that characters grew within that math scaling didn't quite sit so um, it's unfortunate because I've run the Cypher system now for a bunch of groups and they've all kind of had the same opinions of it which is not that you know hey it was fun I don't think I want to play it all the time. Uh, I got to go with advantage and disadvantage for 5e. The interesting thing about advantage and disadvantage is that when we first saw it in the D&D Next playtest, myself and many other GMs who were used to fourth edition and third edition, where you had like the plus two bonus to a lot of things, were like uh, advantage and disadvantage is way too big. It's way too swingy. It's going to ruin the game. I can't believe they chose this. And boy, were we wrong. Like advantage and disadvantage works so well. Newer systems have picked it up. Shadow Dark includes it. It turns out that having this really big swingy mechanic that's fun because you get to roll another die works really really well so i really dug that i think it i think it i think advantage to disadvantage worked worked very very well uh, and then the last one is abstract combat from 13th age 13th age showed me two things i'm gonna cheat i'm gonna add a couple 13th age trained me in two things that i've used in every other game that i've run in, and i've used a lot in fifth edition one is static monster damage is really straightforward and easy and it speeds things up and no one really cares so i, I recommend the static monster damage but then the, how 13th age handles abstract abstract combat is something that has now been ingrained in me i've been i mean i think i've been playing 13th age more than 10 years right i think it came out right around the same time the fifth edition and dnd next was around so it's like 10 years ago and uh, that's stuck with me ever since and it's changed how i play rpgs completely so i really love the abstract combat system from 13th age i recommend 13th age a lot it is an outstanding system it can teach you a whole lot that you can bring to many other rpgs Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games. If you like this show and you want to see more stuff like this, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It is absolutely free to sign up. You get a free adventure generator for signing up, and you get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox that includes links to all of the other work that I do. You can also subscribe to the Patreon, where you get access to things like the Patreon Q&A, dedicated Discord server, the best of Sly Flourish, Lightning 5e, lots of stuff you get, tons and tons of material that you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. And you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy Dames Workbook, the Lazy Dames Companion, Fantastic Adventures, all kinds of books available on the Sly Flourish bookstore. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.